0: Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew.
1: Well, hello there for our listeners. This is the Deacon's Pod with Deacon Dennis and Deacon Drew. We're here to talk about prison ministry this afternoon, and uh, we hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How's it going, Drew? Tom? Yeah, very well. No, very well. Thank You're you very much. You're
2: good? Yeah. But as much as I try, this is as good as it gets. Well, I'm glad you answered him, Tom, because I know he wasn't talking to me when he said looking good. No, no, I was talking to you too. So the reason why we want to talk about prison ministry is because I heard from one of our listeners after she listened to our vocation story podcast that she was a very interested in prison ministry. And to be honest with you, I'm very interested in prison ministry too, for a number of reasons That's a ministry that's foreclosed to me because I can't go into the prisons anymore because of my profession, which I've retired from. We'll just say it like that. So we will talk about that today. Before we do, though, just to put it in a spiritual context, I'd like to read from the Gospel of St. Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. or in prison, and visited you? And the King will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who were members of my family, you did it to me. The Gospel of St. Matthew. Well, Dennis, Tom, each of you, I think, have a a pretty long and, and intense experience of prison ministry. So, let me ask you: How did it
1: start? How did it start? In the beginning, <laughs> very um, biblical. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> go ahead, Tom. The statute
1: of limitations so, uh, is up on all
0: this stuff, so you know, let it, it let your freak okay. flag fly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let it go.
1: Yeah, really. Oh, I had a very personal invitation into prison ministry, and it was by our co-host, Deacon Dennis. So, I know a sucker when I say one. There you, where you go, yeah, yeah. That uh, working in the world but not being out the world theme. But Dennis one day just came out and said, here I was, the uh, CEO of a credit union for a major pharmaceutical firm. And he comes up with this outrageous invitation that, hey, uh, we're going to need some a uh, prison chaplain, and uh, why don't you give it some thought? And when I got done laughing a couple of weeks later, like, uh, how crazy is this? Again, how you end up, where you end up is the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I firmly believe this. But it weighed on my mind, and I think, really, just to appease Dennis, I said, well, yeah, let me find out more about it. And I really think, honestly, it was an appeasement. And so he introduced me to the head of the chaplains, uh, Father Bruno, and uh, we started talking, and one thing led to another. And I said, well, all right, let me give it some thought, some more thought. And he had said, you had to go through the academy to be trained. And that was a function of the state of Connecticut. There was a budget problem, and they ended up putting off the academy training for a while. So I said, well, okay, that's good. This this is the
0: academy that anybody who works for the Department of Corrections has to go to, whether you're a corrections officer, whether you're a maintenance officer, whether you're a counselor. This is basic training. So you know what you can bring in, what you can't, what you can do, what you can't do, how to do it safely, what happens if this. And so that you also understand everybody else's job, so you're not sitting there going, why doesn't this guy open the Sally Port door? You realize the guy in control is doing 15 other things, and you may have to wait a minute for him to push the button for you. So all those things and the paramilitary all structure procedure and the and whole yeah. thing. So that's yeah. just for our listeners, that's what the uh, academy uh, is. Well,
2: let me let me, plus some some physical... Let me me take it back one more step, if I may, Tom. You said you, said you talked to sure. the head of the chaplaincy program. You're talking about for one prison, for the entire prison system? For the entire state okay, of Connecticut. So this was a state prison system for Connecticut.
1: Right. Okay. What? what do we have, 21 yeah. prisons, I think, at the time? So, as I said, the, the training academy was going to be put off for a while because of budgetary cuts. And so I went back to my financial work and one thing led to another. And six months later, Tony says, Father Tony comes up and says, well, they're going to do the academy. I said, well, okay, I don't think I'm still ready yet. We didn't have much time. So don't you know that the academy is put off again because they can't find the money to, to do this. Meanwhile, these places are being understaffed with chaplains and whatever, all the different officers. And
0: that's dangerous. Just so, so we're clear,
1: that's when people get hurt. Yeah. They don't really, have enough it's people it's to cover a good the situation. bases
0: in a prison. Just think about that.
1: Your politicians at yeah. work. Go ahead, <laughs> or not? And so, finally, the time the sufficient time goes by. I had been able to really ponder making that kind of change. I was still pretty, really, actually, fearful to 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 make the jump when the invitation came. But I knew it was decision time, and that had been about two, maybe two and a half years. I had the chance to put my own financial plan in order. Having been a financial planner, I knew how important that was. And one thing led to another, and I ended up saying yes. And boy, I just, I still remember the day. I actually, because things were so bad, I actually went into the academy. I went into prison before I went to the academy, which was pretty much unheard of. So I remember walking into the compound on January 5th, 2005. And it was a cold day, and everything's gray and dismal. It's, and I just remember shaking my head saying, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> What mm. am I doing here? And again, it was cold and dark, 5.30 in the morning, I think, because I, I do it for early. This was your and, first time uh, in well, the prison just, or the
2: first time in the academy?
1: First time in the prison because I, I went to prison before the academy oh, okay. because we didn't So you're,
2: you're the visiting the your prison. Not, which, uh, was this close to your home? 40 minutes away.
1: Okay. And is this the same prison uh, that Dennis was administering? Dennis went to multiple prisons. He, he ended up being rotated through as as the chaplain of, what, four? Five. Yeah, five. I kind of bounced around for a couple. Five. He has five. And let me, I'm sorry for asking these, but I think the listeners will
2: like to know kind of the mechanics of how this worked. Did you have a title? Were you a chaplain?
1: Chaplain. Okay, so, or deacon. Most people call me deacon. Deke, actually. But a- title. you were, um, the
0: title, the official title was
2: Catholic chaplain. Catholic,
0: Catholic chaplain.
1: Catholic
2: chaplain. And was this a, yeah. a paid position or an unpaid? This was, yeah. A paid yeah. position. Okay. Paid us in coin of the realm. And, and, and a 20-year retirement,
0: too, as it turns out. Who knew? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I take it. And it wasn't your you? duty. <laughs> I would say. No, so, that's what it's called. That's why you get 20 and out. And you can okay. stay longer than 20, but you can retire
2: after 20 years, just like a state trooper or a cop or whatever. And how often did you go
1: to the prison to perform your chaplaincy duties? I would go. I was days a week. I went Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, five. Yeah, Tuesday, five, Wednesday, five Thursday, days Thursday days Friday, Saturday. And what about you, Dan? Yeah, five same days a week. Same.
2: same days. Tuesday through Saturday. Well, whatever day you could you could set up your own okay. schedule as long as the bases were touched.
0: And uh, the way it worked is that you, you shared the chapel space. So. Sundays was claimed by the Protestants before we came on board, and so we did mass on Saturday, and right. or communion service as the case may be. We could get a priest in, and then you worked around that. So you might take Sunday and Monday off as your two days off, and work Tuesday through Saturday or whatever. Okay. And Tom worked at the men's prison, which is next door to the women's prison. I worked. I started off half time at the men's. Halftime at the next door women's, it was like two part-time positions they put together, and then okay. once a full-time one opened up, that was at the women's prison. So I I took that as the the responsible thing to do for my family, and Tom came into the the men's prison, Gates Prison, which is which was full-time when you came in, right? They had changed yeah, the hours, so yeah. that was now a full-time position. So we were, and then Tom, and then. Tom also later on, the men were using part of the women's prison grounds in the in the minimum security section outside the fence. They had no contact with women, but it was technically on the women. There was only one women's prison; the other twenty met different kinds of men and stuff. And so, Tom and I would be in the same place at the same time, and we would have lunch between masses and stuff, you know, because we had to do maximum security was one mass, minimum security was on the other side of the fence, and so in between. Tom and I and the volunteers
2: would have lunch and we'd have a little bit of fun and everything so we'd see each other then. Well, you just answered a question that I had. And so this 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 prison had maximum and minimum security? And uh, the mates. prisons? Okay, so the prisons go from levels one to five,
0: five being max, one being you're about ready to be let out. And uh, like I said, there's 21 of them, and so a prison might be level one, two, three, four, five. Now, in the men's 20 prisons, you had, your prison would be one level. So Gates was, when I was at Gates, was a level three. It was medium security, okay? And so, obviously, the closer you get to release, the more things you're allowed to do, blah, 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 you know, the restrictions lower. And, of course, you may start at level three, depending on your crime, you know, or you might start at level two, if you, Mm -hmm. you know, some kind of white-collar crime that there's no violence or danger to society or whatever. Now, in the women's prison, you had all five levels, in one institution that was entertaining, I bet it, it was yeah because <laughs> there's only one women's prison, so we had we had minimum security through max, we had a hospital, we had mental health, we had a place for the young youthful offenders female youthful offenders we had everything now with the men, this whole prison could for would be the mental health prison like mm-hmm. if you had a serious. There are a lot of mental health problems, but if you really were acting out serious mental health, you went to one particular place where the staff was trained to deal with that. If you were a teenage boy, you went to Manson Youth or something. You know, you went to a place where we deal with teenagers. Well, we, we had to keep these young girls away from the older women and, you know, all this, you know, right. you mm-hmm. know from the court. So, so we, you know, the women's prison was
2: interesting because you had the whole DOC in one place. Okay. So now you're a chaplain. What what's your day like? It's five days a week. Did you have a mass every day or group sessions? T- tell us about your day when you walked in and in, in that early morning,
1: gray, foggy January <laughs> day. You get yeah, you get in and the first thing you do is make some coffee because it's cold outside. Get some coffee and you wait for the count to clear and then you do what I used to call the walkabout. Uh, tell the them what the, count was about a tell mile, what the count is. Tell them what the count is. I, I, well, I'm, I'm going to presume where, I know uh, what the count well, is but tell tell, tell us what the count yeah, is. Yeah, That's where the, I think when I first got there were about 1,100 men at the prison and so every unit the CO and every unit had to count their inmates at specific times four or five times during the day and they had to call the count into the main house. Nobody would move. Everybody's on their bunk in their in their cell. There's no uh, activities going on and uh, each CO counts those people Now you might have a couple of people out at court and stuff like that, that couldn't be help, uh, helped. So they would have to say, well, we've got 108 men here, too many at, at court. And then somebody would count all the uh, added up and make sure that it agreed with the prison population. And that would go on f- five times a day, Dennis. How soon you forget. And uh, every once in a while, the count would be off. And then that would just delay any program that you had. So if you if you had a program Bible study starting at one o'clock and the count after lunch was, was not right. Then it would go on until they finally came across the radio. Okay, the count is cleared. You might've eaten up 40 minutes of the hour. And so at that point in time, there'd be a, a resistance that you would basically have lost the program. So it, it was difficult. You really learn. I mean, it's easy to be critical, but it's really hard to keep track of people and, and, and to, to walk through the units and, Especially if the guys are trying to hide anything. Anybody
2: who's (laughs) been an administrator in a school knows how hard it is to keep track of where everybody is. But having said (laughs) that, then after the count was done, then what happened? What did you
1: do next? Well, I'd go around and do a program, or we had volunteers coming in, and we. But basically, the part that I really enjoyed, that to me was the real part of why. The real compensation for me was walking around the units. I had a. I came in with some business experience, so. When I found out the procedure of, like, I would get a, a document every day telling me the new inmates that were coming in. And when you come in as an inmate, you had declared your religious preference. So you could come in if you say Protestant or Catholic or Muslim, uh, no religion. So I'd get a report every day that would tell me the names of the Catholics. So I had hooked up with this facility I was in, had a print shop that they trained a dozen men to work with printing. So I hooked up with the program instructor and got him to print me these little five-by-seven cards. And what it was, it was, it was called itself the St. Dismas Community. And I put on there, I welcomed the men to join the community, and then I put the schedule of the activities on the back. So I would walk around, stay. I was on, in the compound. And specifically looking for those new inmates, whatever unit they were in, I'd, I'd hunt them down. I'd introduce myself and give them a card with the program. And I, I think that was very successful. It was something that really wasn't done by the other chaplains. And uh, it, it it earned me a lot of credit credibility with, with the inmates. So we were able to to, to get into a lot deeper conversations with them for those trying to work their way out. And for them, it just showed a lot of respect that I would do that. So I would go around, and I, like I said, it was about a two-mile activity by the time I get done the end of the day, stopping here and there, and then you have lunch and count, so I'd have to go back to the office and, I'd print up some more of these forms or get some more information and do some reading prep for the either Bible study or I was going to do a uh, Eucharistic service. And a you lot know, of times, Tom, time you'd be talking to the staff, too. I mean, we're we're technically there for the inmates, yeah, right. but you I did mean, a lot. Yes. I mean,
0: the staff <laughs> needed chaplain work, too, so which was also facilitated your getting to the inmates. You know, if you're in good terms with the staff, when you're like, yeah. hey, I see this guy,
1: I mean, they can either make your life difficult or they can make it easy, so— and you're and you're right. And a lot of these, the staff themselves had been through so much. Um, there's a lot of negativity. Obviously, I, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. So being a CEO sitting in a unit for eight or sixteen hours a day. CEO CEO means corrections the Corrections officers. officers, things, officers
2: okay. Yes. Dennis, let me let me um, turn to Dennis for a minute. So what was your day like, Dennis? Dennis? How, what did you? How did you? Was it similar to Tom's or totally different? What did you do?
0: It's a, I mean, essentially, you have to realize that basically what you're doing is running a parish. That's the simplest way to do it. You know, we're pastoring the, the inmates. And so you would do whatever. People would want to see you. You do counseling, depending on, you know, them asking for it. You would prepare for services. A lot of times we preached because, you know, no one wanted to come into prison. One of the great things about being in the prison
2: is no one cared what you did. <laughs> as long as I
0: didn't, I didn't get any letters, nothing bad when, happened.
2: When you say no one cared, you mean there was no hierarchy to watch everything you're doing. Oh yeah, true? no, there was no priest, and when a priest came in, he was working for me. Okay. I, you know, he came in,
0: he volunteered, very nice. God okay. bless him. And a lot of these guys drove by 15 closer <laughs> parishes. I mean, technically, we're in somebody's parish, right? We never saw those people.
2: You never saw them ever. All right. Twenty-one yeah. years, never. But I would go and it, over well there. Well, did you reach out for priests? Did you say, I need oh, yeah. your father yeah, yeah, to come yeah. in on Sunday yeah. or Saturday? Oh, yeah, sure. Or, sure. sure.
0: And, uh, you know, and we, and there would be priests that would drive. Like I said, they'd drive the 40 minutes time, and I drove through yeah. multiple parishes to get there. And, uh, you know, they'd do it for 10 years and burn out, and then you get someone else. And so it was very nice to get a priest on a, on a semi-regular basis to come in, especially to hear confessions. When we had the bishop one time, I gave the bishop a heart attack. He, uh, he said, well, what do you do about priests? And I said, I ain't got no priest, Bishop. You're the one with the priests. You know. <laughs> you know. And he looked at me and I said, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, if, you, if you got any. And he just looked at me because he knows. And I said, mm-hmm. he says, well, what do you do about confessions? I said, I hear them all the time. And he almost <laughs> had a stroke. I said, I don't give absolution, Bishop, but I'm the guy who's here. Who do you think they're talking to? you know and he just right. said oh okay okay but you know so it's basically a parish we had retreats and of course those were big deals to set up to keep people cuz you had to take people off count whoa
2: whoa, whoa wait wait i'm going to take a dive into this you're in prison <laughs> somebody <Yeah. laughs> your your parishioners are people who are not allowed to leave because they are in prison mm-hmm. so usually my concept of a retreat is when you leave the parish and go elsewhere so talk to me about that. How did you do it? Well, we would, it
0: would be in in the institution. It would just yeah. be in a section, and we'd stay, and we'd feed them there. And they, we built a community of people who wanted to be there without the negativity of the guys who didn't want to be, or the women who didn't want to be there. And right. oh, uh, they would have great. a retreat. So we so the, so have... took
2: them out of their daily horrible routine, routine and put them in a, a better, nicer more spiritual yeah. routine And
0: we had we had all kinds Wonderful. of retreats. We had we had, you know, Life in the Spirit. We had various retreats. And we had volunteers that come in who did them and you know, they'd be for the weekend. And it would be a special thing and an in depth time and of course the witness of the volunteers and all that stuff broke through to a lot of people. And so but we'd have confirmation classes, we would have Bible studies, of course. We would do whatever people were interested in. You know, if you get a group I mean, I did I don't know, I did some I did a class in morality once, how to make a moral decision. That was the first thing I did in prison, actually. That's how I got into prison, actually.
2: And, well, let's back up. Let's let's do your vocation story, getting in. We know how Tom got in. You brought him in. How did right. you get in? And I brought Tom in, just by the way, because,
0: not because I know a sucker when I see one, like I said, <laughs> although, you know, but really because Tom, one of the, Tom is crazy, all right. In a good way, in a holy way. And Tom bailed at one time out of the financial stratosphere and, and all the big money guys and everything and opened a soup kitchen and a house of hospitality and everything with his wife, Rachel. Mm-hmm. And so him dealing with street people, crazy people, all that stuff, he likes it. I knew that. And I said, oh, I know where they're keeping the rest of them. <laughs> so that's why I said, hey, Tom, have I got a deal for you. Oh, and I and, and by people. that point I knew it's a paying gig, by the way. So, and he was he was retiring. The
1: Advocate of Man, yeah. Like, yeah. oh my God, yeah. really?
0: I used to say all the time, you know, Holy Mother State has gathered the poor, the, the lame, the sick, the marginal, the addicted in one convenient place for your your ministry convenience, you know. So anyway, so my story. So I'm at, uh, I'm finishing up my deacon training. And I'm at Ender's Island, which is a lovely island in Long Island Sound off the Connecticut coast near Mystic, as in Mystic Pizza. Some of you may know that reference. And it's a retreat center. Lovely. Just surrounded by water. Just beautiful. And uh, I'm sitting there. And so we're finishing up the retreat. And there's a lay minister's retreat going on simultaneously on the island. And we see them. We're having lunch with them. We're talking to them and stuff. And the deacon candidates are separate. And then they have told us, well, if now for your next six weeks, you have to do some kind of other ministry than you're used to doing. You have to stretch yourself a little bit and this kind of stuff. So I can remember I'm sitting on a bench saying, well, what should I do? And the first thing I thought of at this time was, and this was the early 90s, it was like, I was thinking, well, maybe something would aids people, you know, people with AIDS, you know, people were really freaked out by that, you know, in so on so many levels. And because I really, you know, I mean, to me, it was like, why are you going to do this? I never understood why you would do this if you didn't want to do this. You know what I mean? Like, I should go where I'm needed and do things that other people are going to say, oh, really? You know, it's like, that's part of the witness, which is the biggest part of the job we all should be by virtue of our baptism. But anyways, I just, I thought, especially anyone who's ordained. So anyway, so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking AIDS and it's like, well, you know, they got a handle on that now. It wasn't quite the early You know, people were less freaked out. They understood it more and all that stuff. And people were responding, and especially the Catholic hospitals, of course. That's an untold story of who who took the AIDS people in and took care of them. The nuns as the answer to that. But anyway, so I said, I don't know. And I look over, and I see this guy sitting on a rock in front of me that I had met at lunch. And his name was George Wesner. And I remember him saying he worked in a prison. And I thought, prison? Never thought of that. Maybe I could do something in prison. So I grabbed George and I say, hey, George, didn't you say you worked at a prison? He says, yeah. He says, I'm the deputy warden, which I had no idea what that meant. But he was the number two guy at the joint. You know, I mean, that's, you're getting up there. Cause to right. me, it's just this guy I met. And right. I'm like, oh. And I said, well, I was wondering about this, blah, 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 blah. And I got to do this and that. What do you think? He says, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. We don't even have a chaplain now. I'll set it up for you. You want to come in and do something? I said, well, like, what should I do? He said, well, you could do a class. You could do. And I said, okay. And I talked to him a little bit about it. We came up with a, a morality class. So I went in and I did about eight weeks, scared to death, not going to lie. Mm-hmm. The men, this is in the men's prison that Tom ended up at, at, at Gates, J.B. Gates. And I did the, met the guys. It was, it was wonderful. We had a great time. It was a lot of fun. And I come out and George and I said, goodbye to George. I'm saying, Yeah, George. I said, Yeah, we're done. I said, Thank you for doing this. You know, I did my thing for my deacon. It was very interesting and opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. And, you know, and he says, Want a job? I said, What do you mean? He says, A job here. I said, Doing what? He said, being the Catholic chaplain. I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, this is a paying job? He's like, oh, yeah, benefits and retirement. I'm like, you're kidding. He's like, no, because to me, this is volunteer stuff. And he's like, no, no, this is a state job. Now, backstory: I had just closed my third Catholic school. Before that, what I did for a living, if you want to call it that, I taught Catholic high school. And I always tried to teach poor kids in inner city situations. Well, they kept closing every five or six years. I'd go somewhere 10 years and boom, they'd close that school. I'd move to another one. They would close the school. Well, they just, you know, my poor wife, God love her. She wouldn't let me quit. And they had just closed it. Like I had no idea what I was going to do for money. So when this guy said, this was a job, I, I, yeah, I was like, Oh, the baby Jesus is looking out for me because I needed a job. I was out of work, period. Yep. And uh, my wife's a nurse. That's what we're living on at that point. Well, I figured this is my next move. And so I got a job. And I was there 21 years. And I worked with men at, at medium security, women at all security. I worked at the intake place at Corrigan and Rogowski, which are, you know, about 20 minutes away from these two places that are next to each other. And I went up to Brooklyn and worked with sex offenders, which is that whole prison because, you know, in prison they kill you if they find out you're a sex offender. I mean, that's, you know. I know they have them segregated. Yeah, well, they have a whole whole different institution. So I I did some time up there, too. And so it was varied. It was interesting, and it was very rewarding. And the interesting thing is, to me, how well prepared I was because I go back so far. The chaplains didn't go to the academy. I never went to the academy. I was trained by the inmates. So I you
2: figured, figured this grandf- out as I went you along.
0: Grandfathered
2: in, as we like to say. Exactly. Yeah,
0: And uh, it's a good thing to go to the academy, I think. You know, but I had, by that time they started talking to Tom. I already had seven, eight years, whatever. So I knew how things worked. I didn't need to go for that reason. And they never got. They kept saying, "Well, we're going to get to you," and they never did. So I never did the academy. But the thing that was most interesting to me is how God works in this. Because I thought this was going to be really different. I taught high school. Well, after about a year, and I realized this is working. I get this. Why do I get this? I thought this was going to be so different. And my approach, my shtick, my song and dance, it worked. And I'm like, I don't get this. Then I figured it out. Once I figured the addiction connection, Because he started hearing the stories, and I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. It's like, well, is anybody here not? You know, I mean, it was very high levels of this stuff. And so I said, well, I got to learn about the addiction and the twelve steps. So I started, you know, a learning journey on that stuff because that's who I'm dealing with. I should know what what's going on here. But anyways, I do know from being a teacher that there is a thing called arrested development. Mm -hmm. And so even though I'm looking at thirty five, forty year old adults. They're 15, because that's when they started drinking and doing the drugs, and they have not matured. And so the high school stuff, I know how to do this. I get this. It was a perfect, you know, back to Tom's point about how God leads you, it was a perfect preparation for Prenderson ministry. Right. And even like, just as an example, when we would do Mass with the women, we One time I got these volunteers in and they were doing life team, you know, life team magazine, like magazine, life team program is. Yeah, (laughs) true. In a a parish. Well, it's, it's a youth program and, you know, you, you buy stuff and, you you know, you get, you know, this training manual stuff, but they do a lot of stuff. Like when they're singing these, uh, these uh, contemporary religious songs and stuff, right. At church. They, they will often act them out with their hands. Like you think of like the, when you see people at a wedding doing the YMCA, the hands go YMCA, right. That kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Like that kind of hand movements to these religious songs, Mm -hmm. which the teenagers really got into. Well, they did that up at the women's prison and these women were over the moon doing this stuff. And I said, look at this, they're 14, 15, you know, and some of these women were older than I was. So, I mean, it's, so once the arrested development, you realize that it's like, okay, I know this. And then I put a heavy emphasis on 12 steps and understanding drug and alcohol addiction and various ways of dealing with it and counseling people and stuff, because that was the thing that was going to take them out. You know, you get your confirmation, that's, that's great. You get your GED, that's great. But it, your addiction is at the gate doing push-ups waiting for you to come out. If flip. you don't deal with that, mm-hmm. it none of this is going to matter in, in a day after you're out. So I worked really hard on that, and we also instigated a serious program of training the Catholic chaplains. We The chaplain groups used to meet as groups of so the Protestant chaplains met, the Catholics met, you know, whatever, the Muslim chaplains met. And you could do whatever you want with that time. And so we said, well, let's do some training. we got to deal with this. So we brought people in from the addiction services. And they would train us and and make sure that all the chaplains knew, you know. Because again, if you approach this stuff as a moral problem, you're not getting it. It's not Uh, a moral problem. It's a it's a medical problem. It's an addiction, and you got to deal with that. It's a psychological issue. It's all this stuff. So, so yeah. So that's that's how I got into it, and I was very surprised, and I was very happy because I'm an adolescent myself. (laughs)
2: Let me let me ask you both a question. When you're in parish ministry. You know, there's no doubt that you get—there are certain parishioners who you're going to see more often than other people because they want to be there with you. They want to approach you. Some people that need to be with you, other people just want to be with you. Was it like that in prison ministry? Did you have guys that you ran into or women that you ran into on a regular basis that maybe became like your assistant in some ways for the uh, prayer services or for the communion services? Did 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 you make relationships? That's what I'm asking.
1: Yeah, it, they kind of made sure you put a guard on it to be careful in the whole training about how you have that kind of relationship with an inmate. But yes, being human beings, we do. We had people who you could tell we were really trying to work diligently to, to break the cycle and to get out. But I had chapel workers who I was able to pick that were excellent, we, just from the conversations and the depth of the conversations, like that said, of rest of the development, but men who would learn. I, I came to find out that, it was a critical age too. I, I think late 30s, early 40s, you you find men who were, might have been in two or three times and they'd come up to you. I, I remember one guy comes up to me and they'd been to chapel a couple of times. We hadn't had any deep conversations. We've, we we did spend some time, but nothing deep. Finally, he comes up, up to me one day and he really starts to pour his heart out saying, blah, blah, blah. I want to get out of here. I just liked it and says, let me guess, you're 42 years old. He says, how do you know my birthday's in three weeks? I said, oh, no. just observation. It's a, uh, you know, you, you come in, Well, life on the installment plan, you do a two-year bid, you do two years, and you're out for a couple of years, then you come back. Well, by the time you get to be 39, 40, 41, 42, sleeping on a three-inch mattress, mm-hmm. shiny bologna sandwiches on Wednesday afternoon with a, a mm-hmm. grape-sized apple, you know, you, you get tired of that. You get tired of the young people mm-hmm. that are in prison, the kids who are wild and, and, and getting, and just upsetting the, the whole, any quiet that you might find, which is rare. But well, um, they also,
0: they're also yeah, aged yeah. out on the outside. Every time they would go out, they were the older and older. Yes. It's like the NFL. You know, you you know, being <laughs> old, being forty years old is a career. You're done unless you're Tom Brady. You're done. You know, so yeah. you're just too old yeah. to run the streets and keep up with the the young crazy guys and all this stuff. And and you know, a lot of your friends are dead, and a bunch of them are never getting out of prison. And you know, you just it's like a normal relatable example for you know straight society you know non-criminals listening in out there is you know when you just when you get too old to when you get too old to be going to the nightclub anymore you know it's just like you know the these 20 19 and 20 year old girls are looking at the 33 year old guy like oh grandpa get away ooh and and there's always (laughs) one dope who's 50 years old with a bald head and a ponytail who's still Rocking, you know, and and he's the joke of the club because he's the one guy who didn't get the memo. Your time in this space is over, and so that would happen with inmates, both inside, like Tom was saying, but also on the outside when they go back. They weren't going back to anything familiar, and it got harder and harder. And you know,
2: kind of reality kind of beats it into them that you got to change or you're going to end up dead. Did you have any days that are memorable to you as being like the worst or the best day? In other words, was it ever bad to the point that you didn't want to go back? I mean, how was it? Or was it great every day? Was it inspiring to you? (laughs) No, not every
1: day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I had, when I was at the J.B. Gates, they had a residential AA program. A lot could be said for their attempt to get these guys straightened out. And I would go there a couple of times a week and That was just an uplifting experience because here the guys that were taken were adjudged to be those who were trying to to really work their lives and and to get back together. And I'd appreciate the stories, the personal stories that would come out of those, the the problems that they had. Those are the good days to be able to to look at them and and, and have some hope, a glimmer of hope that maybe their lives can change. And maybe that I had something to do. Do you have any understanding whether any of them did? For instance,
2: where I am, I do some work with people who have served their time and are now out under supervised release. It's called the re- renew program or reentry, depending on where you're at. And those are the guys who are out and want to stay out and are working hard to stay out. And we and we help them through that. Did you Did you have an opportunity to see any of your parishioners, I'm going to call them parishioners, <laughs> on the outside when they
1: got out? I did not, but I was with a friend of mine who is also retired from DOC, Department of Corrections who lives down here in Florida. And we went to a restaurant one night here, the, the Bayside. So I'm with you're, this uh, fellow. Yeah, he and I in Florida Here in Florida, yeah. And we go to the restaurant, and we we get our meal, and the waitress brought us that, and then first, she brings everything over the first time and the second time. And then she comes over without bringing anything to check on the meal, and she says to the fellow I'm with, you were, you were at York CI. You were... Uh, corrections officer. And he looks at her and says, yes, I was. And she gave him the greatest compliment of how he would, um, you know, talk to these women, how he treated them with respect and uh, provided that kind of guidance that you had the chance to do as a CO. But often you never had that conversation, but he was one of the good ones. And that's why I kind of, when Dennis said, yeah, you hook up with the, the corrections officers, their lives are a mess. But there were good men in there, too, who were doing the right thing. Oh, wonderful. Was There's nothing better than a good CO. Yep. Yep. I mean,
0: they expect oh, the yeah, chaplain we had to them. be nice. They expect you to say these things. But, boy, when yeah. a CO does it, and there were a number of them that did it, it had twice the power of hearing it from a chaplain. saying You could say the same thing. So there were a number and, of COs. And I was
1: actually with Dennis at a, a restaurant, going into a restaurant, and the lady coming out, she'd recognize no, you right away. No, I have it all the time. You <laughs> I, know, remember, I remember
0: going to do I was preaching at some parish. I stopped before I got to the church. It was very early in the morning, and McDonald's had just opened in this other town, and I pulled up to the drive-in window and ordered it, and a lady who looked at me when she handed me my thing went, Deacon Dolan. And about 15 people in that McDonald's ran to the window and stuck their head out. I take an eye, I'm doing good and all this stuff, you know? So I guess that was their first job. And it's like, oh, good ladies. Hey, I got to go to church now, but it's nice to see you. You know, I'm praying for you. But no, I've had uh, inmates. I had to change my Facebook stuff because, you know, when I started, inmates wouldn't know a computer if you dropped one on them or how to use it. But as the years went on, obviously... They were. They knew about and people. I've had multiple inmates contact me through Facebook or whatever, and hey, I'm doing good and this and that, and you know, or call me on the phone. Or I mean, you know, they can find you. So I, I had to change my name on all these things so that if they search for for me, they it wouldn't come up the same way. You know, I reverse my middle name for my last name and stuff like that. You know, so, yeah, no, I've had a bunch of them and I've seen, I've had, I've had lunch with a few of them on occasion, you know, so some of them are doing, some of them are doing well. Try not to Eh, keep it eh. going. It's accidental because it is a defensive ministry and you know, the person you knew inside who was not say using drugs is not the person you're going to meet who's now using drugs on the outside. So you have to be very careful. Like Tom said, it's a defensive ministry. I mean, these are damaged people and you certainly don't want them coming to your house. And that's happened, by the way, you know, like, Oh, who's it? Oh my God. You know, they found me. So, you know, it's, it's, it. there have been good contacts and things like that, but we, you try to, the professional thing is you try to turn them over. Okay. You get a parish, you get a pass across the problem with that is they go to the parish and it's like, Oh, you know, after you've done seven, eight, 10 years of work and, they're interested, and the pastor says, "Go away. We don't want your kind here." And so that's always fun yeah. too, you know. It's like, yeah, okay, just un- un-
1: undo your work, you know. So that happened too. But yeah, no, I, I had some good, and some people made it, and, and I had a case where Rachel and I, Rachel and I, were actually did Bible study at the women's prison for five or six years before any of this happened. When I got involved as a a chaplain, but we ran into one of the women who we knew from the Bible study who was trying as hard as she can. She was a, her boyfriend was an abuser, and uh, we remember when she was getting ready to go out, this is when we were doing Bible study, and I said, just stay away from this guy, stay away from this guy. Well, she gets out, and we go back, keep doing our our programs for a while. Then we're down in, in New London one day by the bus station, and we're doing shopping, and we see her, we run into her, and <laughs> once an inmate always, man, yeah. And she was waiting to try and get some money to get the bus up to Putnam, Connecticut. And so we gave her some money to get up to the bus. Well, don't you know, like three, four months later, we get word that her boyfriend, who was abusive, did in fact kill her. Uh, uh, she went back to the relationship. Again, to Dennis's point, it's, it's so difficult to break these habits. You, you can advise an inmate, don't go back to Bridgeport. Don't find a new place to go to. Get a, break Change your zip your code. Friends.
0: Move one. Yeah, you don't have to go to Oklahoma. Just move one. Yeah.
1: You know, Uh, move, uh, you know, you uh, come home
0: for uh, Sunday dinner, assuming there was a home and a Sunday dinner, which there wasn't. Yeah. But you know, here's the thing that people need to understand. There is no one in prison in Europe. And you can look it up. And I'm saying that compared to what the number of people we lock up. And that's because I believe because they have that nasty health insurance for everybody. Because. The majority of people in prison, in my experience, and according to statistics I've seen, I'm not an expert, but, you know, 21 years buys me a a decent opinion, I think. Most of the people, you know, what most people think of prison is, is people who did something wrong, we're going to punish them, and they're going to not do that again. Well, that's true for less than 10%. Yes, I, I stole money. I was in my right mind. And you know what? Prison works for those people. They don't come back. But if you look at the recidivism rate, the repeat rate, you know, the people who we called frequent flyers or, as Tom would say, doing life on the installment plan. And the worst part of that, of course, is after a while you were there as long as we were, you'd go into the visiting room where the families would come in to visit the inmates. And you'd find out that that this new inmate you're talking to, she knew you from when she was a little kid visiting her mother in the visiting room. You know, this is the Mm -hmm. biblical thing. The sins of the parents are visited on the children to the fourth generation. Well, there's some truth to that. I don't think God's doing it to you, but, you know, it goes down family systems. But anyways, in Europe, when you're poor and Johnny's got a mental problem, which is what 90% of these people are, 50% of the women in the prison were on high-level psych meds. Now, again, you're in a prison. We got hundreds of people who are employed to tell you when to stand up, when to sit down, when to go to bed, when to eat 24, seven, And we still got to heavily medicate you to make that work. 50% of the population. And then I giving out those expensive drugs just cause, I mean, you got to earn that, you know, I've seen them give someone with a broken leg, a Motrin and say, go back to your unit. You know, I mean, it wasn't like they're throwing money away on medical. So in Europe, When you have a poor kid, let's say, and he's got a mental problem, he gets treatment. And then he doesn't go to jail. In this country, we don't. Because, you know, the $10,000 would have cost for medication treatment, you know, at seven years old for Johnny. What happens is the story I've heard over and over again is that Johnny doesn't fit in. Johnny's acting out. Johnny doesn't know what the problem is. His parents are poor. They don't have the the resources, the access. You know, they don't know what's going on or how to deal with it. He's just a bad kid. Then he gets in with other bad kids. Then he falls behind the schoolwork. Then he discovers drugs, which makes him feel better. So now he's self-medicating. Or it might be alcohol, which is also a drug. We forget that. It's also a drug. So he's self-medicating. And then he's addicted. Well, the only way to maintain that is a lifestyle of crime. And that's why he can't get out. He goes in for two years, three years. He gets out. He comes back because he's still addicted. Now, in Europe, they have very few people. I'm just saying, and you're paying for it. This is the other thing. You know, this is not like, well, I'm not going to pay for it. You can either pay for the medicine or you can pay for this unbelievably expensive prison system. In most places, most states, your prison system is the biggest part of your budget, of your state. It's, it's not the judiciary. It's not the state colleges prison. And you get nothing for that. You're warehousing these people and then turning them back out. It's like locking someone up and saying, listen, I'm going to keep locking you up till your diabetes goes away. Well, you can do it. If you want to pay the money to do that, but his diabetes isn't going away. So I, I, I believe that if we spent money on for people, you could close most of these prisons just, and again, just go to Europe. Original sin still in Europe. People are broken. There's mental illness in Europe. They're not locking people up anywhere near the numbers we are. Mm-hmm. So I mean, prison is where we all the problems go that we won't deal with. That's what Tom and I, those are our parishioners. This is all the problems. <laughs> Any social problem, anything that we are not paying for, too bad for you, lock them up. Don't want to know about it. Well, you're, you're paying for it so many ways. And again, With the women, remember this, when you lock mommy up, all those kids go to DCF or youth services or whatever they call it where you live. It costs a lot more to lock a woman up, which you're going to pay because you're going to have to pay for all these kids. And dad, well, what dad in most cases, you know, like really, you know, so, so that's my little speech, but that's what, that's the system. And that's what Tom and I were dealing with is all the
2: problems that everybody else wants to ignore and not deal with. Well, let me, let me start to, as our hour winds down, let me take it in a slightly different direction. If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking about looking at prison ministry, what are the things that they should consider? How should they discern whether or not they, should, they are the right person to enter into prison ministry? What would you tell a person considering?
1: You have to have a wide heart, I tell you. You have to have a wide berth. This whole idea of judgment or anything, you got to leave it behind. You have to be a people person. You have to know your own charisms, your own gifts, and you have to have a strong desire to want to just share your life with others in in ways that can help alleviate suffering, mental, physical, and the emotional suffering that goes along with prison work. I don't know if there's any particular way to prepare other than to to do your own inventory and have a listening ear for where the Spirit is guiding you, because probably not going to be the first thing that comes to your mind. You, you, you probably have a disposition of wanting to help people and then see where it leads.
0: Well, I would say also, Tom's absolutely right, but I would say also that, like I said before, you know, you're dealing with a teenage mentality, so you've got to be okay with that. And the other thing is you have to be, as Jesus said, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So Tom talked about the harmless as doves. I'm going to give you the wise as serpents. You have to understand that a lot of these people see volunteers and chaplains as suckers, and they will try to get you to break the rules. So, when they teach you the rules as a volunteer don't bring this in, don't do this, don't do that, don't do it. They're, those rules are there for a reason. And when an inmate tells you, Well, I'd like you to do this, that your nose know against the rules, you should just remind them of the rules and say, No, you have to be a parent. No. And then the word gets out, just like being a substitute teacher. Okay. This person is not an easy pushover. All the word gets out that you are, and now you've just really cooked your goose. But you have to be able to have that balance. You know, it's a defensive ministry. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that you are very safe. The inmates appreciate their volunteers. They know you're you're not their jailer. They know you're there to do something for them. And if an inmate ever touched a volunteer, the other inmates would kill him, or a chaplain.
2: Well, that that brings me to a question: Should one be afraid when they walk in, into into a prison ministry? Is it is it is fear a part of the job, or do you control the fear, or do you not have any fear? I think you know you have to if you know. I mean, you got to be aware,
0: but it's not fearful. I was never. I mean, I was my first went in because you see the movies and you wonder what it's going to be. But after a while, you realize, okay, I'm, I'm I'm safe here. And like I'm saying, the inmates appreciate you. The inmates will protect you a lot of times. I have a story about that, too, if you wanted to hear. it. But it's very common for inmates, because even if an inmate, like, first of all, there's other ways to volunteer besides beside the church. One is that, you know, like they have art instructors. Like, maybe you're good at art. You don't have to teach catechism, necessarily. You don't have to go in with the chaplains. You know, they have art programs. They have this. They have that. You could do any number of things. You have to ask and see what's what's available. But the inmates, even if they don't take your program, if someone hurts a volunteer, all the volunteers stop coming. And so I may be in the art class, and I really don't care about religion, but I know that you don't touch a volunteer or hurt a volunteer or my art program's out the window. And one time, just a real quick story, just to illustrate this, I'm getting the mail. The mail was down the main building at Gates. I'm in the chaplain's office and I'm packing up and I'm walking out. And one of the guys comes in and says, "Hey, Dee," says, "Hey, where are you going?" I said, oh, "I'm going to go out and get the mail. You Want to walk with me?" He says, "No, I got to talk to you." And he's being real shifty. Now, this is a guy I know, and I'm like, "What's what's going on?" He says, "I need to talk to you." Well, when I come back, we'll talk. Let me go get the mail. He says, "No, no, I need to talk to you now. It's important." I said, "You can't wait." He says, "No." I said, okay, so I go back into my office, and I'm standing. Now, behind me is a window that looks out into the wreck yard, and he's looking at me, the window's behind me, and he's looking over my shoulder as he's talking to me. He's not making eye contact. And I said, what is it? Well, you know, when he's hemming and horn, I'm going, what's going on? And he says that, and he points behind me. I turn around, and the whole yard just erupts into a riot. They were breaking up picnic tables, gangs, beating each other, all this stuff. He said, I didn't want you walking into that. And I said, well, I appreciate it. And then he said, <laughs> thank you. Hey, he said, can I stay here with you? I said, absolutely. We'll stay here and pray for those knuckleheads outside. <laughs> he says, well, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not supposed to be here. I said, you won't get in trouble. I'll make sure you don't get in trouble. You know. So we, we watched the riot through the window. But that guy, he went out of his way to find me to make sure. So, I mean, again, I wasn't walking out. He didn't see me. I was still out of his sight. He had the initiative. He figured out what was going to, about to happen. He walked up to the chapel, walked in to make sure I was going to be okay. That's my, my story. So you're, in, you're really in pretty good shape. You're safer than you are at the mall or at the average American high school. Yeah, really? We took away The way weapons, things are going, you know? huh? And there's a CO outside yeah. the door wherever you are. And if someone, you're doing your Bible study, someone's acting up, you just, you just look
2: at the CO and go, and that guy's gone. They right. take him out. So so how has it affected you? You know, After a lifetime, you're be- you've both been out of it now for a few years.
1: How has it affected you? It's one of those things that pop up. As matter of fact, I was talking to my pastor this morning. He goes over to the jail over here on Mondays, another day too. And so he asked, he says, do you have any interest to go back? And I said, "Yeah, it doesn't make my heart beat faster to to go back, but it was a good experience. And a positive experience in helping me understand some of the difficulties we face when we have the conversation about prison reform. But, yeah, I think I was ready for other things. It, it does weigh you down. It, yeah. uh, you see uh, that whole question of, is there really justice? What Dennis was saying, does the crime fit the, the punishment? We could send, I think, what the average cost was, that he could send somebody to jail for what 55 we're doing. Grand uh, the last time I knew what it would cost, that, a year. That, that's a big issue, That whether or not how...
2: You know, the sentencing guidelines, the sentencing laws, the why people are sentenced, who's actually in prison. Those are all big issues, and you guys have talked about them today from a hand knowledge of those systems. But right now, I'm interested to know the spiritual aspect of it. Did you see God at work in these men and women? Absolutely. You know, people yeah. would yeah. people <laughs> would tease me at the parish. They'd say,
0: oh, how's it going at the prison, deacon? i said, it's going good saving any souls down there, you know, in a cynical way. And right. I would say, right. oh yeah, a lot more than in this parish. And that's yeah. the truth. You yeah. know, I mean, there are people that are, are, life is brought to their knees. They are ready to deal with God. Not all of them. And, and the amount of pain some of these people can take is just beyond my comprehension. It's like, really? You still not? I mean, I would have been done a long time ago, but people do change. You do see miracles. Jesus said, I was in prison and he visited me, and here's here's my tip. He he shows up. You meet Jesus in prison. That's we didn't poetry. have a name for you it. Will, if you go into okay. prison on a regular basis, you will experience Christ. You absolutely will. And we, it's,
1: it's made my faith much stronger. We've got the name for it now. We didn't have it before. It was accompaniment. That whole idea of you're with the people trying to bring some comfort and relief you're listening to them that's you know you can't talk a guy out of being an alcoholic you you just got to be there you show up you show what what positive affirmation could do to people and but that's the experience i felt that that there was there were things that were happening that were beyond me that were just because i was there that would not happen
0: oh yeah and the poor and it's the poor and the broken too you know i mean it's people that are just they got nothing going and you just realize how how blessed you are with a college education <laughs> and three squares a day and a stable marriage and good parents you are just like my god
2: this is another planet it really is and so, uh, so we started the this podcast with the uh, with the scripture from St Matthew of having of Jesus saying that when you visited the imprisoned you visited me and both of you i think have now confirmed that That's true. Correct?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. It actually is. I would take that literally now based on my own experience. And before, I assumed it was kind of metaphorical. But There's a lot of powerful spiritual dynamics going on in prison. There really are. And you see them. They're not
1: hidden. Thank you very much. And I'll testify that there's more going on there than there were when I was in the boardrooms of the biggest banks in New England. Sitting around with the wealthy, the rich. Or, or in the average yeah. parish where people are going through motions. You know, they think oh. they're superior to
0: these people. And, I, I mean, well, you know, you see these inmates give their last whatever to somebody who just came in who has got nothing. I mean, it's just I, uh,
2: the camel, the eye of the knee and the camel. Thank you very much. This has been uh, very inspiring and wonderful to listen to.
1: Well, I hope the person that requested a- <laughs> This conversation is is uplifted by sorry, they uh, what we said. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> but you'd be appreciated if you wanted to get involved in prison ministry. You'd be okay. welcome. Thank you both very much.
0: Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course at our own website www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, Pod, all one word. dot com, and of course we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is DeaconsPod, again with an S, Deacons, at paulis.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.